32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United United Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go backstage and under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about, luckily, without a load of people shouting at each other in a studio. This week's question, how do 1,257 companies with a combined turnover of 68 billion, which is equal to 17.5% of Irish GDP, and for those not good with fractions, that's a fifth of our GDP. How do they work from one office block on North Wall Quay in Dublin? That's right. This week we're talking about the fantasy magical greenhorned unicorn that is the Irish GDP. We're going to be joined by Samuel Brazies, an associate professor at UCD, to figure out whether this unicorn is real. Where does it live? Is its skin really made from golden shamrock fleece? And who's that riding on its back? Why, it's Pascal Donoghue. We're not really looking for a unicorn, but we are looking for sense. And I think you're going to really enjoy this chat. It is fascinating. And we do love a bit of uh, tax law discussion on the pod. Who knew? Uh, Yeah, speaking of sense, would you throw us some sense? (laughs) Patreon plug right there, baby. Um, This podcast runs entirely on the fuel generated from Patreon. So put some petrol in our tank <laughs> over at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. The cheesy slogans really lose their power when you're taking the piss out of them in the actual moment. I love them. Look, I'm not taking the piss. I'm just enjoying them. First up, it's the state of the nation. Now, the nation, or at least one street of it, was in some state on Saturday on Grafton Street in Dublin city centre um, when a proto- protest turned violent, anti-lockdown type protest. Our bonus podcast this week speaks to friend of the pod, Aoife Gallagher. Uh, you've heard her on a few times, an expert in extremism and hate and disinformation. And she talks about the context that has given rise uh, to this happening and what, what's going to happen next basically. So check that out. It's our bonus podcast this week. Speaking of protests uh, in Myanmar, police have fired on protesters, um, which has now brought the number of protesters who have been killed so far in Myanmar up to 21. Um, It's absolutely terrifying what's happening there. Um, And yeah, I think we all need to be talking about it and like sorting it out. Um, Can we do that? Maybe not on this podcast, but I definitely think uh, you're right. It's something that's going on in the background that is, you know, just pops up in little bits of, you know, news, but not really the gravity of what's going on. Um, I'm just watching Anthony Bourdain's episode, which starts in Myanmar, and he's like, and I suppose looking at its history and how it can so easily go back to that with what's going on now, I think it's very important to be shining at some lights. Um, there's been a lot of expectation measuring going on with the pandemic uh, length of the pandemic. Mike Ryan um, WHO was talking about how, look, we're not going to be rid of COVID at the, by the end of this year. That pandemics do run, have these like kind of two to three years lengths. Now, at the same time, there's never been such a huge... Um, amount of effort and resources put into developing a vaccine either. But it kind of goes back to the thing that we are talking about. We have been talking about consistently from the get-go about these saviour narratives around vaccines. And yes, they mitigate so much of um, the devastation the virus causes, particularly in hospitals, but they don't necessarily eradicate the virus completely. Massive inequality globally with regards to who can actually get access to these vaccines so I think, yeah, I think measuring expectations at this point is good. And, you know, as long as it's being done in a way that doesn't really depress people or it feels like there's no future, because that's not the case either. Yeah, I think also on the inequity of vaccines um, to highlight the Israel uh, plight, well, not their plight, the plight, the Palestinians of Israel not uh, giving vaccines to their people they rule over. Yes, indeed. Um, 103 Bank of Ireland branches are closing. 
which will have obviously a big impact on people accessing banking and also just physical spaces in in kind of town and, and village centres. And in the UK, Ponton's kind of holiday camp thingy, they're under fire for listing Irish surnames that they wouldn't take bookings from. Um, a lot of these surnames seem to, to seem to be surnames that happen to be common amongst um, uh, Irish travellers. So that's clearly a discrimination bit there. I think it's really interesting how disgusted people are about this because I don't think it should be a moment where we can hammer a British company for being anti-Irish. We need to actually look back on ourselves and acknowledge the widespread discrimination um, against travellers in Ireland, which also includes access to hotels or pubs or wedding venues and things like that. So sometimes these things can be quite juicy for people to just be like, oh, it's so terrible. Look at this anti-Irishness happening somewhere else. And it's like, well, actually, what about what's going on in our own society? <laughs> you know, because... Our own anti-Irishness. Hugely, yeah. So... Um, I'm, on, I'm on the list. I th- Are you on the list of Horan? Horan, yeah. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, I think we should... Sometimes these kind of things can feel like anti-British or anti-English sentiment. And it's actually more about, well, you know, this discrimination is really underpinned horribly in Ireland itself so maybe let's take a look at that okay and I do a side note that isn't yes. a side of the nation but the other day I saw two of those beautiful uh, wooden um, what are they called oh the wooden caravans yeah, uh, the wooden oh, caravans, yeah. two of them were traveling along as, and I literally was like oh my god they're so gorgeous yeah, they're, they're so intricate and beautiful 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 objects altogether um, okay well let's talk about the main topic today it's uh, GDP. Yeah, you know me. So gross domestic product is an old economic metric still widely bandied about to apparently measure, na- measure a nation's economic prowess. But in a global economy that often operates in different stratospheres to what's actually happening on the ground experienced by people, is it relevant at all? In Ireland, our post-crash recovery, heavy quotation marks there, has largely been characterised by a lot of multinational companies making Ireland home, at least on paper, uh, while public services, housing and wages and cost of living, stuff like that, uh, point to a much different economy happening day to day. So are we living in a fantasy with the LGDP and what does this parallel economy mean in a global context? Samuel Brazies is an Associate Professor of Politics in UCD. We were very much drawn to his tweets about 1,257 companies with a combined turnover of 68 billion euro, uh, which is equivalent to 17.5% of the Irish GDP, working from one office block in North Walkey in Dublin. Um, First of all, Samuel, can you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? I believe at one stage you were an economic advisor to the Federated States of Micronesia. Yeah, that's it. So I, I traded uh, a hot and rainy island in the equatorial Pacific for a cold and rainy island here in the in the North Atlantic, um, but spent a few years there before settling in Ireland where I've, I've been um, and working at UCD for, geez, the past eight and a half or nine years now. Uh, okay, straight in. What does GDP actually measure? Yeah, so GDP, right, is, is gross domestic product. And I think like Una says, it really is an old concept and it, it dates back to a time when we were thinking about measuring the productivity, the production, the output of an economy, you know, back in the day when that meant factories, right? You know, that meant goods that were being produced in places. Um, GDP has always been a problematic measure, right? You know, for what it doesn't count household work, right? Worked out of the household, child minding, you know, taking care of the house as, as part of output, um, which I think we all, you know, might take some issue with. Um, but, you know, sort of, there's different ways of calculating GDP. There are different methods, whether you're calculating on income or output. Um, but basically, it's everything that an economy is producing, uh, at least in theory. And then what does GNP measure? Is that a little more nuanced or does it incorporate a more or does it create a more realistic picture? Yeah, so this is this is the difference. So this is where Ireland, you know, gets these funky statistics. This is why you get the leprechaun economics, you know, the big 26% jump in GDP in, in 2015. Um, because GDP, like I said, harkens to a time when we didn't live in or when we lived in a much different global economy, um, one that wasn't nearly as globalized, one that wasn't nearly as financialized. Um, one that didn't involve as much foreign investment and one that also had different types uh, or didn't have the types of assets that we have now, which we'll talk about maybe in just a second in terms of things like intellectual property and intangible assets. 
So what GNP gets you, it strips out any income or profits from Irish-based production that accrues to foreign residents or from foreign-based production that accrues to, from uh to, to Irish residents. So basically, if you have multinational corporations, a lot of them, like we do here in Ireland, um, who are foreign-based on paper or their uh, global ultimate owner is foreign-based on paper, GMP will strip out the profits that are being made uh, by those firms, right? Because that money isn't really, you know, touching base in Ireland ever, right? It's accruing back to the foreign owner, um, you know, in the United States or wherever it's based. But beyond that, right, really the metric that we have to use here in Ireland uh, is something called gross national income. Or because Ireland is so wonky and because our statistics are so wonky, they actually had to make up a new statistic for Ireland called gross national income star. And what this does, what gross national income star does is it strips out the depreciation of foreign owned intellectual property assets. And in most countries, in most instances, like that's negligible, right? That's a rounding error. You know, that's hardly even worth including in the statistics. But here in Ireland, due to Ireland's longstanding policy of attracting foreign direct investment, um, that's become an important part of the Irish GDP story. And in particular, uh, as you know, you may well be aware, um, Ireland has used different tax strategies to attract foreign direct investment. And, you know, this goes back decades, right? Ireland's been doing this for you know, 50, 60 years. Um, but in the 2000s, there was an increased usage of a loophole in international tax law um, that allowed countries to essentially, right, incorporate a company in Ireland um, and then have that company uh, lease its intellectual property assets to companies that might be based in some place like Bermuda. So from Irish tax law standpoint, the company would not be tax resident in Ireland. From the U.S. in this case, who might be the global ultimate owner standpoint, uh, the company wasn't tax resident in the U.S. Um, and the company that was in Bermuda paid no taxes. So effectively, you had a company that was tax resident nowhere. And this was this all is, credit. This, this is the double Irish. Yeah, this, so this yeah. is the double Irish. This is what's called the double Irish. And, and the idea here um, is that companies were basically able to uh, send their profits to the subsidiary based in Bermuda. And what they were doing is they were leasing out intellectual property assets, right? Now, that's going to include things, intangible assets, you know, patents, right? You know, royalties that accrue to that, but also things like marketing or branding. Um, you know, Donald Trump, right, is famous. You know, a lot of his supposed wealth, um, you know, is the value of his brand, right? The Trump brand. Um, that would be considered an intangible asset. And so Ireland allowed those companies to, to house those here in Ireland um, and then gives them something called the capital allowance for intangible assets, which allows companies to basically reduce their tax liability um, by writing off the depreciation of those intangible assets. So that's that's kind of the where this all comes from and why we need this funky statistic GNI star, um, because that's massive amounts. So that the whole story of that, right, is the the double Irish gets closed down. Uh, in 2015. Um, but companies are sort of given a grace period of five years to kind of get their affairs in order, right, to to get out of that loophole. And at the same time, though, in 2015, Ireland increases the amount of the deduction that companies can take on this capital allowance for intangible assets from 80% to 100%. And what this does is this really jukes the Irish statistics from 2015 on. So if you look at foreign direct investment coming into Ireland, um, if you look at the amount of corporate tax that Ireland has been taking over the last five years, it takes this huge jump up in 2015. And this was the year of leprechaun economics. And what was happening there is that a lot of these firms were bringing their intellectual property assets into Ireland, right? And all that you, know, you really need to do for that is you have one subsidiary sort of transfer these on paper to another. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples of this, right, is you, you see like 20 billion um, in intangible assets coming from PepsiCo. Right. During this time period, um, you know, Pepsi, you know, they don't have a lot of patents. What is it? It's like the formula, right, for, you know, the secret Pepsi sauce. Right. Um, you know, and I don't know, maybe this was like locked up in a, you know, a, a safe somewhere in the U.S. and they brought it to Sligo or something. It's in the bottling plant there now. Um, but this is what's accounted for a lot of these big jumps in the Irish statistics since 2015 and why sort of, you know, a traditional measure like GDP uh, is so inaccurate. Why does Ireland do why does Ireland allow it? Yeah. So again, right, the tax is a big part of Ireland's uh, 
strategy to attract foreign and direct investment. And again, you know, we have to take into consideration the realities of the Irish economy, right? We're a small economy, you know, we're relatively resource poor, um, you know, what Ireland really has going for it and has had going for it for the past 30 years is its access to the European market. And it knows this. And, you know, the IDA has worked hard to attract different types of investment into Ireland. And they've done a good job of that, right? And they've attracted a lot of sort of real investment. And, you know, there are a number of real factories here that are employing people, there are office buildings and, you know, the Silicon docks, all of that kind of stuff. And that's really the kind of economy that Ireland can have. Um, Now, you know, sort of the tax incentives that have come along with that, again, used to be just sort of tied to, you know, things like producing goods that were relatively easy to to tax and to identify. Um, but it's only with the advent, right, with the increase of these intangible assets um, as part of the production process that, you know, we see this this bigger sort of problem. And, you know, so what does Ireland get out of this? Well, we do get it. We get some chunk, right? We get to tax a little bit of the profit that's accruing to those intangible assets. And so I've been doing some work recently, some research uh, with my colleague at UCD, Dr. Aidan Regan, where we've been trying to dig into a few firms and figure out what different firms are doing. Um, and, you know, we would suggest, and it's tough to say, and this is some of what the, uh, you know, the discussion in Brussels that's been happening the last few days has been about. Um, but, you know, we would suggest that a substantial amount of the increase in Irish corporate tax receipts, which has jumped from something like $6 billion in 2015 to $12 billion last year, is coming from additional tax that's accruing on these intangible assets. So that's, you know, that's what Ireland gets out of it. Uh, the problem is, of course, right, is that those tax receipts might be incredibly volatile, right? They might be incredibly susceptible to changes in different tax regulations, like the discussions that are going on right now, both at the EU and also in the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, um, that's looking at trying to close down some of these international tax loopholes. Kind of reminds me of a key plot point in the seminal uh, film Burlesque, starring Cher and Christina Aguilera, when the strip club was going to be bulldozed, Cher realised that there was a loop in the leasehold and they in fact owned the air. So there could be no subsequent <laughs> development uh, around it. the air above the, the club. What I mean to say uh, by citing that, um, you know, landmark piece of cinema is that there is a sense of nonsense to this and a sense of pretense, is there not? If Ireland has to come up with GNI star, or I can't believe it's not GDP or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> is is nobody saying there is a, there is a, a sense of, I don't know, a theatre to it that when, you know, a minister for finance or a department or whatever is saying, oh, look, this is where we are. I mean, it's kind of not really. It's jiggery poker. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, so this, it's, you know, it's kind of two things. I mean, it, it is jiggery pokery. Um, and, you know, it stems from sort of the history of international taxation, and international tax law, right? So, again, sort of back in the day, back in the world where all we were making were manufactured goods, um, you know, the idea is, is that you don't want to get double taxed, right? You know, people, companies, you know, shouldn't be getting their income tax in more than one place. So tax law has always sort of remained a national level issue, right? There's very little international cooperation on sort of harmonizing tax laws and getting tax laws together. And the tax treaties that do exist largely focus on avoiding these issues of double taxation. Um, now, the problem is, right, is that as global production has changed, as these things um, have have emerged and intangible assets become more important, uh, you know, you get very clever, uh, you know, lawyers and accountants. And again, you know, that's another boon maybe to Ireland, right? You know, there are a lot of folks working in the law offices and the accounting offices, uh, you know, in, in, in Dublin, um, you know, that make a lot of money um, doing things that are legal. Right. But, you know, figuring out sort of, you know, the legal ways to employ a tax strategy by incorporating different subsidiaries in different places and putting different things on the balance sheets. But like you say, then a lot of that becomes you know very detached from what's actually happening in terms of production. So, again, this is part of what Dr. Regan and I have been trying to get at is, you know, because. I, we think that we've sort of felt that, you know, there have been two kind of simplistic narratives around what happens in Ireland. So, you know, you have, you know, the real sort of proponents of the IDA and the FDI growth model saying, yeah, this is all real. You know, this is what's being driven by Ireland. Look how great we're doing. You know, the rest of Europe was in recession. We're doing great. Rah, rah, us. Um, you know, then there are folks on the other side that saying, listen, this is all higgery piggery, right? It's all smoke and mirrors. You know, there's nothing of substance there, right? You know, Ireland is just a tax haven, you know, that's, that's chance in their arm. And the truth almost certainly is somewhere in the middle. 
And this is the real difficulty in disentangling it. You know, what we found by looking into sort of firm level data that we have access to um, is that there is no one story and there's no even really one story by firm. Different firms are doing different things here in Ireland. So there are some firms that are sort of 100% totally legit. You know, I mean, they've, they're, you know, as legit as any company can be, right? You know, they're reporting what they're actually doing and sort of the numbers on paper reflect what's actually happening in Ireland. Do any companies do that? Do any companies do that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I said, I said as, as much as possible, right? Um, and then on the other side, right, there are some of these, you know, these letterbox firms, um, you know, that as far as we can tell, you know, are moving tens of billions of assets on paper in and out of Ireland, um, you know, are reporting things, you know, that may or may not be happening in Ireland, probably not, right? Um, you know, and are probably doing that to accrue some sort of tax advantage. Now, we don't have access to that data, right? Only revenue right now would have access to what an individual firm is paying. This is what was happening in Europe last week in, in Brussels, um, trying to get country by country reporting where um, there'd be a requirement for firms over a certain amount of turnover to report how much they have in profit and tax in any given country. Um, but there's certainly some of that going on. And then there's sort of these firms in the middle, right? Firms that, you know, certainly are doing some real things here. You know, we know they have a factory. We know they have an office building. We know there are people working there. But when you look at their balance sheets, when you look at the financials, it also seems that there's a bit of a higgery piggery going on as well there. And the real trick is disentangling, you know, would the real stuff be here without the, you know, the funny stuff? Um, or is the real stuff only here? So, you know, they sort of have a basis for, you know, claiming the funny stuff as well. And that's, I think that's the bigger question that potentially poses the bigger threat to the Irish growth model. It kind of feels sometimes like uh, GDP is a bit gaslighty, maybe when we're announcing all these figures. And I think like a few weeks ago, Fine Gael came out with their like, our GDP is so stunning, but you have them people who are living on their 350s a week and like so much of the country. So it doesn't feel like it's translating to the majority of people on the ground. So how far away from Ireland's GDP is the actual real Irish economy? Yeah, so so I mean, like the the estimates, right, of G and I star, you know, are probably you know they they vary by year, but you know, sort of two thirds or seventy percent of GDP. So I mean, you can kind of take that as the real number, right? Um, you know, so the Irish economy is you know probably about you know twenty thirty percent less than than what the GDP number is. But the problem is, right, is a lot of stuff gets measured with GDP in the denominator. So, you know, if we're talking about, you know, what Ireland's contribution is to Brussels, if we're talking about, you know, the IMF is concerned about, you know. Uh, Irish debt to GDP, right? All of these things, um, you know, can be distorted by the fact that we're using GDP in measurement, right, rather than GNI. So, you know, Ireland's, you know, actual debt is probably a lot worse, you know, than it is when we when we divide it by GDP, right? In the same token, Ireland's contribution to Brussels, right, is probably higher than it really should be, um, you know, because again, these things are are weighted in, in GDP. Um, but I mean, the other important thing to say about GDP or any of these national statistics is that they're aggregate statistics, right? Um, you know, and they don't take issues of distribution um, into into effect, right, or, or inequality. Um, so, you know, Dr. Regan and I actually did a paper a few years ago about this, sort of looking at you know where foreign direct investment in Ireland was going, who was accruing, what sectors. Um, you know, and it's no surprise to anyone, right, that it's you know heavily, heavily concentrated in Dublin, heavily concentrated within a few sectors in Dublin. Um, so yeah, you know, if you're working in the Silicon docks for one of the tech companies or one of the pharma companies, you know, life is great. Right. But, you know, if you're in Roscommon or you're in Offaly where you're not seeing any of that foreign direct investment, um, you know, it, it can be a very different story in terms of the local economy. Why don't people just in order to game this system, if, if this system exists and we have to exist under it because we don't seem to have much control over our tax law, um, why don't people just incorporate themselves root their intangible assets of their brand through Ireland um, and then say that that is the majority of their work and not pay any tax. Just I was just asking for a friend. Listen, yeah, I'm not a lawyer or a tax advisor, but, you know, if you want to incorporate as Una Inc. and, uh, you know, say that all of your value is accruing to your intangible Una brand, um, you know, you may be able to pay corporate tax rate. Um, you know, I've, I've heard anecdotes 
Um, you know, and I, again, who knows, right? But, you know, rumors, you know, that there are folks at some of these big firms, accounting or law firms, um, that are basically advised to set themselves up as companies and then rather work as, you know, rather they're working as full-time employees, they're working as consultants uh, and they're paying corporate tax on their earnings sort of rather than a personal income tax rate. So it may be that some people are doing that, you know, they're taking down the system from the inside. Um, but, you know, I mean, that, that kind of stuff would be small potatoes, right, compared to, you know, what we're talking about. I mean, so, you know, when we think about these intangible assets coming into Ireland, um, Apple, right, is one of the least transparent companies in terms of what we know about them. Um, but, you know, some work that some other folks have done, you know, digging into this suggests that they've probably brought in hundreds of billions worth of intangible assets um, between 2015 and now. There are a couple other firms that are big up there in sort of the hundreds of billions. Um, Adve, which owns Allergan out here in County Mayo, where I am, so it better, I don't want to say too much, less, uh, you know, the pitchforks come for me. Um, but, you know, based on what we can see from what they report and their financials, um, you know, this is another company that's, you know, taken a massive advantage of bringing intellectual property assets to, to Ireland. So, you know, that's, you know, the, you know, <laughs> us paying, you know, a few quid in tax, you know, versus as a consultant versus an employee, um, you know, pales in comparison to the scale that we're talking about uh, in terms of what these, these firms are doing. What economic policies led to this situation? Like, as we all know about how reliant we are on FDI and the corporate tax rate is debated a lot. And there's sort of a fingers in the air approach to that, despite increased rumblings of dissatisfaction from the US and EU. Was this always the way? Listen, I mean, you all know this country a lot better than I do. Um, and this has been a question that's, you know, that's been on my, my mind a lot is, you know, is this, is this just, something that sort of happened by accident. And again, some very clever lawyers and accountants figured this out and said, wow, you know, here was the double Irish loophole. Um, sort of what's replaced that now is something called the Green Jersey, where, where companies are doing something similar, but they, they use a firm that's incorporated in Jersey. Um, you know, are those just sort of, again, the fact that we have such a hodgepodge of international tax law and, you know, so sort of good lawyers and accountants can figure that out and say, here's the loophole, um, you know, or was this by design, right? And and I don't, I don't know, I wouldn't, you know, dare speculate on that. Um, but, you know, certainly, I don't think, you know, this, this hasn't been, and, you know, this is the other thing about Ireland. Um, you know, when people point to Ireland and the Irish growth model and, you know, the, the Celtic Tiger and the Celtic Phoenix um, and all of this, um, you know, this is underpinned by real activity that, you know, we haven't seen in other places. So, uh, you know, in the 2008 financial crisis, um, you know, when countries, including Ireland and the European periphery, you know, get hard by the global hit get hit hard by the global financial shock. Uh, you know, you see a lot of people saying to Greece, well, you know, just be Ireland, right? You know, just lower your tax rate, um, you know, attract foreign direct investment, you can be Ireland. And, you know, the thing about Ireland is they've been pursuing this, Ireland's been pursuing this since the 1950s, right? And, you know, the corporate tax piece is surely and always surely has been a huge component of that, right? But, you know, it's also the fact that Ireland, you know, is stable with that. Ireland hasn't changed that. So, you know, in 2008, um, you know, everybody's taxes go up, you know, granny loses her fuel allowance, right? You know, austerity hits everywhere, right? The one place it doesn't hit, the one thing it doesn't touch is, is the corporate tax rate. And, you know, cynically, you might say, well, you know, that's because, you know, firms have so much power over the Irish government and, you know, they, they weren't going to let that happen. Um, but, you know, there's a value to that kind of credible commitment, right? To say that, you know, these are the economic policies that we have and sort of through thick and thin, uh, we're going to remain committed to those. And sort of that kind of credibility, if you're Greece, you can't get overnight, right? That only accrues through decades of pursuing sort of this, this policy. Um, now, again, you know, did anyone ever intend it to get this wacky and for the statistics to get this funky and, you know, for sort of, you know, the real economy to get so far away from the paper economy? Uh, you know, I, I can't say, right? But, you know, certainly there is this huge divergence now, um, which is why we have to come up with these other measures. Do you think it's fair? <laughs> to whom? <laughs> the, the, so, man, you know, the man on the street, Sam. Fair <laughs> to the man on the street. Listen, so, you know, as, as a political scientist, right, you know, you, you always have to say to, to whom, you know, in, in any kind of policy, uh, you know, there'll be there'll be winners and losers, um, you know, and again, it's, it's always hard to consider and construct counterfactual, right? Um, you know, what would Ireland look like 
you know, had we not been pulling in, you know, corporate investments since the 1980s, right? Would you have ever had the Celtic Tiger? Would you have ever had, you know, sort of the rest of the growth? And again, you know, I, I wasn't here and it's before my time, but, you know, my understanding is that, you know, houses in North Dublin, right, you know, still had outdoor plumbing in the 1970s. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a huge leap in terms of development over the past 40 or 50 years, um, which is certainly in large part attributable to this growth model. Now, you know, does that say that sort of, you know, all of the rents from this growth model are being, you know, distributed in a politically optimal way? Well, you know, I'd say politically optimal depends on, you know, sort of what your preferences are, right? Um, so, you know, I'm sure that there are folks, um, you know, that are in that field, um, you know, that, that they don't benefit, right, from, you know, the current Irish growth model. Let's say, um, Sam, before you go, um, you are appointed as the head of the IMF and the head of the World Bank simultaneously. It's a unique appointment, but we're <laughs> going to go with it. And you are tasked with um, formulating a new measure of uh, economies, national economies in real terms. What do you go for? Are you kind of gravitating more towards the kind of New Zealand happiness index type thing or... Is it something more, no, let's just inflate these fantasy economies and then we can keep the whole show on the road? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. And again, I think, you know, it's it's hard to argue, you know, regardless of sort of where you stand on, on the political spectrum, um, that more transparency around these issues would be better, right? Um, because again, even for the Irish government, you know, Discussions that we've had, you know, maybe informally with folks at finance or revenue, um, you know, I mean, revenue knows, but, you know, it's, it's not necessarily even clear always that our policymakers have a good sense of how stable their tax revenues are. So it's really hard, um, you know, if you're in government, you're trying to budget, you're trying to put in place investment. And, you know, you don't know, are, you know, are we going to have a drop in $4 billion in corporate tax next year if the OECD BEPS reform goes through? So, you know, more transparency would give us more comfort in the numbers, right? And they might, you know, we might be able to get rid of sort of that paper world, right? And have a real number that, you know, okay, we're, we're confident with that. Now that said, you know, something like, you know, the, the New Zealand or Bhutan, you know, gross national happiness, um, you know, I think it's certainly always useful to think about other metrics of, of how an economy is doing. And, you know, as you mentioned, right, this is why a lot of folks will say, listen, aggregate statistics like this, you know, are, are only part of the story. We need to look at things, you know, like measures of inequality, you know, things like the Gini coefficient, right? Um, you know, measures of environmental quality, right? I mean, there are lots of other things that contribute to how well a country is doing, um, you know, other than the total amount of money that the country brings in, whether that's real or fake, right? You know, whether that's on paper or, or uh, you know, the actual uh, income that's coming in. Thanks so much for your time. Illuminating uh, <laughs> stuff. And we will definitely back be back on to you potentially with our own VAT returns. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, that's so much um, stuff to think about in that and particularly with what may be coming down the line in terms of, obviously, you know, when you say that these things are precarious, they're also so precarious with regards to international tax law. And if something changes in the US or at a European level, Ireland, which was you know, surfing this wave uh, may be in big trouble. Although, again, that's something that people have been saying for years with regards to the corporate tax rate itself. So we'll see what happens. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. There'll probably be a soft landing, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, thanks, thanks, thanks for having me on. I, I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Cheers. Andrea, what's getting in the sea? It's a friend of the sea. Uh, usually the white water rafting variety, which is a river, so not really the sea. Um, this week, um, there was a comment made by the DCC chief executive, Owen Keegan, um, about the fact that homeless people don't have a right to pitch tents. Um, a legal right, yeah. A legal right. Yeah, this kind of commentary, like, it's just, you can... It feels real like, well, these are the actual rules. It's like, okay, well, what about the actual experience and what about the empathy? Do you know, it's real kind of... But also, I always think from the head of a, of a Dublin City Council, like, you don't own the city any more than anyone else. Like, and public property is owned by each and every one of us. And then maybe I wouldn't be, maybe this is my Legally Blonde Law moment 
um, where I come in and tap my Prada shoes and go, but who really owns the streets? We all do. End scene. Uh, so I think there's that question, and I, it may not perhaps be the correct legal uh, term, but I'm going with it. So we think, yes, telling, like the bigger picture of like, okay, the, why are they pitching tents? Why are people looking for shelter in tents on the street? And if we can't answer that and just are going, well, they're not actually allowed to do that. I'll piss off and get in the sea. And now it's bananas. It's bananas. What the government did um, in a very cynical move. And it, to me, it was the worst type of politics. And whenever I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe politics is kind of trucking along. Then you see the shizen move that basically um, oh, it was so gross. The government um, allowed a vote to go through on a sock dems motion, extending the Mother and Baby Hands Commission. Uh, so they wouldn't have uproar against people having to vote and say, no, we shouldn't extend it, blah, blah, blah. So it went through, and that, but they knew that they weren't going to act on it, So, which means that the commission was dissolved on Sunday. Um, but there are bigger issues, I suppose, in terms of like the dissolution of the commission poses a threat to access to justice for the survivors. Um, where do they go now? What happens now? Um, and I just thought whatever the bigger questions are around it, just the move of, of letting something just filter away and let it go and through was just a bit slimy. Like a banana? Like, like a bad banana. <laughs> and now it's time for our fave bits. Andrea, cheer me up. What are your fave bits this week? Um, my first fave bit is I am reading the book that everyone seems to be reading at the moment, Megan Nolan's Acts of Desperation. Um, it is a very interesting book so far. I'm very much enjoying it. Um, and yeah, it's getting lauded around the world. I think even uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has come out on Goop and said it's fab. There you go. If you trust anyone, I think it's Gwyneth Paltrow, especially what did she release? The no restriction fasting diet. Um, I think fasting by its very nature is a restriction, Gwyneth, but you know, whatever. Oh God, that woman. I like that woman. And I just think some of the stuff she comes out with. But I do like some, this is a side note. Wow, I might get on with it. My next fave bit is uh, the ICCL Human Rights on Film, uh, which is a, an award that's part of the Virgin Media Dublin Film Festival, which kicks off tomorrow or on the 3rd, whenever you might be listening to this, uh, and runs till the 14th. And uh, I was lucky enough to be on the judging panel for this Rights on Film Award and got to watch all the films that are nominated. And it's the award has kind of gotten um, really well esteemed, that the quality is amazing of the films that are uh, nominated, and a lot more films are entering to get this award. And so I watched... The Dissident, which is about the murder of Khashoggi in the Istanbul, uh, Saudi place. Embassy, yeah. Embassy. It is the most bananas uh, thing. And the film provides such a, they get really close to his partner who was due to marry, um, like footage of him buying his like lazy boy in his new house. Not, it's very like um, a really great insight into that story. That is very shocking. Uh, father is an amazing film about a Syrian father whose children are taken away from him because he is poor. And it raises obviously the question of like, do you have a right to have a family if you're poor? And how can your, you lose the right just because you don't have enough money? And then whatever that means for the kids, and all that kind of jazz. The Reason I Jump, another great film. Um, and that is based on a really famous book. And yeah, it gives an insight into nonverbal communication of people who are autistic, who have autism. Uh, Limbo is a satire film that is about refugees and their integration in Scotland, a kind of comedy take on it. Uh, a Worm in the Heart is about the journey uh, two people went on through Russia uh, trying to sh highlight um, queer 
communities and how difficult it gets the further you go away from the capital and the traumas. Um, like a, there's a really harsh part and it says these trans women who have to escape Russia and go to New York and they try and get in contact with their friends and they just can't find them. So they don't know if they're alive or dead. It, it just is. Yeah, it's very, uh, it's actually made by an Irish guy. Um, so worth a watch and a casa, my home, which again is about this family who live in a wetlands and they're made joint society. And it's like, who makes the decisions of what society has to look like? And what do you have to like, why do you, are you told that you have to go to school? And if you don't want to, can you not? But you, you can't. So I would highly recommend watching all of those. And I really enjoyed them. Um, yeah. And then my last five bit was, Daft Punk coming to an end and the little film they made on YouTube to say goodbye. Um, that felt a little bit too long. <laughs> That's so all da- song. Daft Punk reference there within the Daft Punk item. That was very cleverly done. What are your uh, favorite? <clears throat> my favorite bits. Uh, can't remember if I mentioned this before, but I'm going to mention it again. Sisters with Transistors is going to be on the IFI at Home channel. There's also a special screening and Q&A on March 8th, which is International Women's Day. Um, and it is an amazing documentary by a woman called Lisa Rovner about the very early female pioneers of electronic music and sounds. So going back to kind of uh, the early and mid 20th century, basically, and um Clara Rockmore, who kind of mastered the theremin after meeting Professor Theremin, and and she was a virtuoso uh, kind of violin prodigy as a child, and mastered this instrument in a way that people hadn't. Or Delia Derbyshire in the BBC, and Laurie Spiegel, um, Suzanne Ciani. Like there's there's just amazing, amazing artists, and it is really informative, really well made doc. I actually have an interview with um, Lisa Rovner in the Irish Times this weekend, I think. And um, my other fave bit is John Gunn's cameras on Wexford Street in Dublin. Basically, have jo- the, the company, the business, John, they've joined Instagram. I think it's the third, there's three or four generations who've been working in that shop. The shop is 50 years old and it's just a very lovely place for people to get their camera equipment and their photos developed and it just one of those kind of additions to Instagram that really warms your heart because really happy kind of content I suppose of people like excited about getting their pictures developed and um, they're also running this uh, public kind of exhibition of where people submit their photos and they'll put them up on Wexford Street and loads of stuff about the history of the store and of the street so that's cool I'm into that do you know they're at what? What's their handle? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure if you just if you just search John Gunn with two ends on Instagram, it'll come up. Um, and my book of the week. Um, this week I've been reading lots of short, shorter books. Uh, because I've been reading kind of some heavy stuff. So just a bunch of shorter books to just change the state as frequently as possible. Uh, which can sometimes be really good when you don't have the energy or the attention span for something kind of long. So I picked up um, from my bookcase at Dublin Old School again, the play by Emma Kerwin, um, which I've read before, seen a million times. And it was just so amazing to just be in that state again and picturing myself sitting in the project, seeing that play for the first time, I think it was. And uh, yeah, just like that joy of reading like short books or plays or scripts when you want to just escape for like a couple of hours. Um, yeah, very necessary. This podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan and Castaway Media. Crystal Cleared gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all of our design. Andrea, what's this week's tuna chicken roll? Too long, can you feel it? Obviously, Daft Punk are no more, so they have to be the tuna. It's too long. I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. And that was GDP, yeah, you know me. Too long, too long, too long, too long, too long, it's been much too long. 
feel it coming too on. Long. The feeling's getting strong. Too it's long. been much too long. I feel it coming too on. Long. The feeling's in my bones. Too it's long. been much too long. I feel it coming too on. Long. The feeling's getting strong. It's been much too long. I feel it coming on. The feelings in my bones. Too long. Can you feel it? 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 Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. At last, the long way is over. The weight is off my shoulders. I'm taking all control, yeah.
Well, all right.